Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. My guest today is Marika Bell. She's an anthrozoologist and a CPDT dog trainer, and I'm so excited to talk to her. Hi, Marika. Hi, Colleen. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm so happy to have you here today uh, because, of course, anthrozoologist, that's not that common. Uh, So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be an anthrozoologist and a dog trainer? Like, What drove you in those directions? Sure. So... First of all, anthrozoologist is the study of the human and animal bond um, and the connections and interactions that humans and animals share. So that can range. It's a huge interdisciplinary area that can range from, you know, studying animals in um, a lab setting, not the actual scientists who are studying the animals in the lab, but the study of the study of animals in the lab setting, I suppose, if that makes sense. Um, you know, you, you, you're looking at animals in the homes. Um, we, we have animals, you know, that we eat and animals that we don't eat and, and the study of that sort of dichotomy. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that animals and humans interact in our lives that sometimes we don't even think about. And, and that's what anthrozoologists like to look at is all of those little connections. So not necessarily just our pets or just our food, but all of the things. And uh, I think it's become a really, uh, it, it's definitely a growing area. And hopefully people will hear the word more and more because I think it's a really important area to get people thinking about those connections. It absolutely is an important thing. And it is a very broad field. It can go in so many different directions. What drew you toward the field? I mean, everybody always says, oh, I was an animal person. I'll start at the beginning, as you have you have suggested, where I, I first had my first really strong connection with an animal that was a stuffed toy. Um, I didn't have a lot of little you know, pets growing up, um, but I always really gravitated towards animals when I had the opportunity. And my parents were throwing this group, big garage sale that was a community garage sale because we had the, like the biggest yard. And so everybody from the church, um, I think it was a church, came and put out, you know, whatever they've had. And somebody brought one of these massive lions that they won at a fair, you know, a circus fair. It's like, it was bigger than I was. Right. And it was old. It was like, it didn't stand up anymore. It just, you know, flumped over and and just sort of sat there. But I looked out my window in the morning as people were arriving and this, this lion was arriving. And I just was like, Oh yeah, that is mine. So I went down there and I told my mom that I really wanted that. She said, Oh, you know, well, if it's still here by the end of the day, because it was like $4, right. Which was a massive amount of money for me. Yes. Cause I was like four years old. So I, my four-year-old devious mind, I made sure the lion was placed sort of apart from a lot of the other things. 
and its price tag was in its ear. So I sat on the lion covering up the price tag pretty much all day long. Nobody really could get me off the line. So of course it was there at the end of the day. Of course it was. Yes, of course it was. And my mom ended up paying 50 cents for it or something like that. And, uh, and so I, I got it and that was Barney and I completely anthropomorphized Barney. If things have entities, then Barney was, you know, my guardian and just my, my best friend for a very long time. And this connection with lions in particular grew more when I, I saw the movie when I was about eight, probably I saw the movie born free Mm -hmm. and just this idea that that you could work with or live with a big cat, like a real big cat was amazing to me. And, you know, the effort that Joy and George Adamson put into this, this lion, Elsa, to get her back to the wild was, was really uh, eye-opening, I suppose, even for an eight-year-old that, uh, that that was even a problem, you know, that that could be a problem of animals in captivity. And so, Immediately, I I was like, okay, well, that's what I want to do. I want to work with big cats. Who works with big cats? So maybe I'll be a zookeeper. Maybe I'll be a circus lion tamer. Like, right, again, this Mm -hmm. is my my eight-year-old mind kind of figuring out what the heck I could do as an adult with a big cat. But I really knew I wanted to have some sort of relationship with big cats. So I uh, that was sort of my my laser focus then from then on was how I made that happen. Um, so I, you know, in high school, you don't really have many opportunities to, to do that sort of thing, but I took a lot of biology classes and I kind of realized that I was going to need to go to university, which was never really a question for, for my family, but I needed to do something more than biology. I decided because I feel like lots of people do biology. It's kind of a very basic area. And I I was going to have to like push myself a little bit more and do zoology because there was really no other options, right? It's mm-hmm. like there's biology, there's zoology, zoology sort of pre-vet, pre-med stuff, which was not where I wanted to go at all. I didn't want to be a vet. I didn't, I faint at the sight of blood when I was younger. I, I still have fainting episodes occasionally, but you know, somebody who wants to work with big cats, maybe that's not the best thing, but <laughs> I just, I didn't think about that far, but I, I just was thinking what could give me a leg up because lots of people want to work with animals. I had, you know, that was pretty apparent, but it doesn't pay well usually. So um, I needed to to do something a little above and beyond. So I thought zoology was a little harder and I could maybe, you know, that would be better on a resume. So I went with zoology and um, I went to Washington State University initially. And I tried to take as many classes that seemed like interesting animal connection classes, but there was really nothing that really spoke to me in terms of what I really wanted to be doing, which was looking at that connection. There's a lot of behavior or there was a lot of behavior classes in regards to um, like bird migration and mating behaviors and, you know, a lot of instinctual animal behavior. That's what those classes were. They were about that sort of thing. They weren't about why animals and humans interact. And there was nothing like that on any curriculum that I could see in in any university. Not that I worked very hard at trying to find university because well, my parents were very insistent that I go to university and I certainly had always planned to, we didn't really have a lot of money. So a state university was sort of where, and, you know, I was lived in Washington state. So that was, I had a couple of options and I was kind of lazy at the same time. So I knew I would get into to WSU relatively easily. 
there was no requirement that I, you know, like I had to write a massive essay or anything, um, which I just didn't feel like doing at the end of high school. I was kind of burnt out. So I went to Wazoo fairly easily. But again, not a lot of classes that that met what I was really looking for. I think one that was really interesting was uh, wildlife nutrition. Mm-hmm. That was a really cool class with Charlie Robbins um, teaching that class. And, and I got to work with the bears that were at uh, Wazoo. So that was my big first uh, big predator that I got to interact with. And it was, it was one of these volunteer roles where, you know, I want a few students who will come in super early, help me feed the bears, clean the cages and, um, you know, do the the husbandry stuff that we need to do. And I was like, oh, oh yes, (laughs) you know, hands up, jumping up and down. Let me help you with that. And I got picked, which was luck, I suppose, because I think he, he in some ways just pulled names out of a hat for that, but I was super into it. It was, it was such a cool experience to work with the bears. And, you know, he, he really, he did care about the animals that he had in, in the bear facility there. He also had a lot of deer as a separate sort of thing, but he would never do experiments on the animals that were harmful to them. And I think that was, you know, if, if, if that had been part of what was going on, I wouldn't have been able to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was nutritional research. So he'd feed them like salmon or deer, not his deer, but roadkill deer that would be brought mm-hmm. and, you know, look at their poo, basically. <laughs> and uh, it was a really uh, interesting little side thing that I was allowed to do. And, and one day, oh, the babies were born. So, so we, we first get to start in March, just as the bears are waking up. So they're still in hibernation typically. And they, the babies are generally born and he would breed the bears um, or allow them to breed. I guess you don't breed bears, but um, he would allow them to breed if, you know, there was room in the facility or if um, he needed the babies for some sort of research. And that was the part that was really, really difficult because he did have to put some of the babies down afterwards because he couldn't find homes for them. So that was weird. And I didn't know that was going to happen when I first started, but that was a really, I don't know, yeah, uh, sad aspect to the whole program. But uh, one that I think we see a lot in animal work of, of, you know, euthanizing animals and animals as a commodity. So that was my first uh, introduction to that aspect of animal welfare work as well. But it was amazing to see the mama bears and their babies in their dens and, and just you know, hear them. The mama bear would hum to the babies and uh, as she was nursing them. And it was, it was really very sweet. And I got to, to work with Bo, who was this massive, like 850 pound brown bear, you know, grizzly bear. And, and he just was pissed all the time. Like, like, why are you guys here? What I'm going to eat you, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to eat you if you let me eat you. Um, so just watch out. <laughs> and we'd take these, we had these massive pressure hoses that we would spray down, you know, the insides of the, the mm-hmm. animal uh, enclosures with, and there was a window that opened to the outside area. So you'd have to yell at the bears to get them to move to the outside area. And this was another really, one of my firsts was realizing that animals have different languages, mm-hmm. not like you can't talk to them and, and say, you know, in a human voice, I need you to move to there so that I can clean your area. Um, and with bears, you have to talk to them in a bear voice for them to really respect and understand what you want. And you'd have to yell really loud. And I won't do it here because, you know, everybody's <laughs> listening, but you really had to scream, you know, as forceful as you could tell Bo to get out the damn door 
right now because you needed to clean his den. And he would look at you and he'd sort of like, "Uh, all right. And then he'd leave if you yelled loud enough, but he would just not pay attention if you didn't. And he would wander out there and then you'd have to open the window. And there was like this white box that he was not allowed to come into around the window area because the window, he could slam it shut on you. And, you know, if your arms were outside the window, the window had bars, but, you know, he could grab you or pull you out or just slam the window on you, which would all be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So the hose could kind of be out there, but generally you're supposed to try to stay behind the window while you're spraying out there. But he would get in front of the hose and like roll around (laughs) and like let you give him a bit of a bath. and, And he loved that part. But occasionally I remember one time he was just in a bad mood and I could see him shuffling towards me. And I was just like, Bo, don't you do it. Don't you come over here. And usually that would be enough and they'd go, oh, fine. And they'd kind of go back to the, to the, the, the farther corner. But he was like, no, I'm, I'm coming over there. And he just slammed that window so hard at me. But I, I could see it coming because, you know, you just you, you look at the body language. And yeah. that's the funny thing about animals, I think, is that communication and that body language is so similar over, at least with mammals. And mm-hmm. certainly I think with other animals as well. But it may be why I have such a, a fondness towards mammals more than um, birds and, and lizards and fish is just because I feel like I, I know what they're, you know, I can, I can feel what they're, what they're planning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can feel what they're thinking. I just by looking at how they're acting and looking at that context. And it was just a, a really interesting experience. One day I, I came in to show my mom, actually the bears, because we we're allowed to bring our family and everybody was there. And I was like, Oh, why is everybody here? Um, but apparently Bo had woken up with a, a sore in his mouth or, or a, he was basically bleeding from the mouth. And, you know, how are you going to check his welfare? Because he's an 850 pound grizzly bear. So I immediately suited up in my jumpsuit and started helping out. And we darted him um, and put him out, which is a crazy job in itself. Like the the lung power you need to to dart an animal is not like the movies. Like you don't just go poof and, you know, like the animal falls over. You have to have so much power to, to punch that dart through to get through the skin. And then it takes like 20 minutes for an animal to finally like start to feel sleepy and then to fall asleep. And then you rush in there and we had to winch him up onto a truck and drive this bear to the vet hospital at Wazoo, which was about a mile and a half away. And they had to like figure out how to get him, you know, in, and they usually did horses. There was, there's a big equine and farm kind of uh, vet school there. And they got him up there and opened his mouth and realized he'd had a, he had a laceration on his tongue from a broken tooth. So they fixed him up and winched him back and brought him all the way back. And then we all got pictures with him while he was took completely out intubated still. And, you know, we're waiting for him to wake up a little bit so that you could pull out the intubation tube, but not so awake that, you know, he would also eat you at the same time. It's a good balance to find. Yeah. It's a balance. Um, and, you know, but I've got pictures of me, like with my head around my hand around this bear who looks completely dead. It's got like a blood pooling around his mouth and this tube hanging out. And, but it, you know, it was a, a pretty awesome experience. And, and that just made me want to work with animals even more and, and realize that I would need luck and I would need all of the help I could get in order to, to get the kind of job I was looking for, which was, you know, big cats. I'm curious about your mom's experience that day. Like she's going with you to see the bears and all of a sudden you're suiting up and going in like, yeah, the mom part of me would be like, I don't think that's what I'm picking for my child. Well, you know, 
that same day, we, we still had to, you know, they were still sort of in the middle of cleaning, even though it wasn't my day to help um, because of what was going on. So I helped with that too. And the babies, um, they had to clean the den and they had to measure the babies. Um, and so one of the moms was outside and they had had the babies inside and she did not like that at all. She was slamming on the door, like thumping over mm-hmm. and over while we like really quickly weighed the babies and, you know, made sure they were healthy and then, you know, got them all ready. And of course took our pictures with the babies really quick because baby bears. Yeah. And my mom got her picture with the baby bear as well. So that's what my mom was doing. She was getting pictures with baby bears. Probably better than seeing her daughter, like trying to winch an 850 pound bear. Oh, uh, you'd have to ask her how she felt about that. I don't know. I think she thought it was pretty fascinating. She's always been a a nature and and animal person as well. But yeah, it, it was quite a, quite a first, you know, introduction to, to working with wild animals. So what came after the bears? Uh, I still didn't quite know how I was going to get a zoo job and work with big cats, but then uh, a man showed up with a black panther or a um, a black leopard named Thunder uh, to do a talk at the dorms that we were at, and he was from a, a big cat rescue up in Spokane. It was about an hour and a half-ish from Wazoo, and he ran a big cat training like zookeeper training sort of program, Mm -hmm. not accredited, but you know, I got to work with big cats. So I called my dad and I was like, so I'm going to go do that now and not finish my zoology degree yet. (laughs) So that was an interesting conversation. I ended up staying at Wazoo for three years. And then I went and did this zookeeper uh, training program for uh, another year and, uh, and finished my zoology degree after that. But yeah, then I, uh, that's how I first started working with big cats was with at this uh, sanctuary up in Spokane, which was an amazing, crazy, insane experience that probably I can't talk about in great detail or else I'll get sued. But um, there were crazy things that happened and amazing. You know, I got to pet a tiger and I got to feed lions. And, you know, I saw a couple of instances where people were attacked by big cats which was also crazy. And yeah, it's, it was an amazing experience that I would, I I would, I don't know if I can recommend it, but I do recommend it. Yeah. Some experiences in life are like that. Yeah, I guess so. It paid off for me, but I'm not sure I would tell someone else to do it. Yeah. But on the other hand, oh, wow. The learning. But I did get to, I did get to work with my big cats that I had always wanted to. And it only took me till I was, you know, I was, I was 20 at the time. So it was amazing. And, um, I made some amazing friends and, uh, some of them were big cats. So yeah, it was awesome. But I also realized at that point, um, that I just maybe wasn't into the zoo thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exhibition of animals was a little, oh, um, there was something didn't feel right about it. Mm-hmm. And I was disturbed by by the the focus on the bureaucracy and the money and you know the I don't want to say kind of sleaziness that went along with some of it. Um, I mean, I wouldn't call Woodland Park Zoo sleazy by any by any account, but it was you know it's it's it had its bureaucracy, mm-hmm. and and the privately owned zoos can be a bit sleazy. And you know the the, the sanctuary where I worked took care of the animals so well, you know, all the money really went to the animals. 
it's just that sometimes the people are, are damaged. And that is, uh, that's a problem everywhere. I know, but it's, it's a big problem when you're working with big cats. Yeah. And, and that's where a lot of the bad stories I have from that time came from is just damaged people doing crazy things that they shouldn't be doing with big cats around. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just, I just, after Woodland Park Zoo, I just realized that zoos were not where I wanted to end up. It turns out after you know, spending my entire childhood thinking that's what I was going to want to do and do. And I really had to come up with something else. So, and I had, I had really burnt out on that a little bit. So I took a break from animal stuff. I, um, I got married and I um, started doing custom framing design, art framing, which was amazing. It was probably one of you know, the best jobs I've ever had. It was so artistic. I wasn't the artist who had made the art, but I got to really showcase the art for people mm-hmm. and I got to hang it in their homes. And, you know, even if I made a mistake, even if something went terribly wrong, which hardly ever happened, but even if it did, nobody died. Yeah. That was, that was a good feeling. Yes. <laughs> even on the worst day, nobody died. And you can't say that when you work with animals. So it was a huge emotional relief for me for the three years that I did that. Um, and after that, I was ready to sort of go back into working with animals again. And I wasn't really sure how I wanted to do that because I had done the big cat stuff. I had done the zoos and I didn't really know where else I wanted to go from there. So I, I took a course on dog training because I had been introduced to clicker training when I was at the big cat sanctuary. That's primarily how we worked with the big cats. You know, you can't force a, a big cat to, to do anything. Again, going back to how you've got to talk to animals the way they understand, you've got to know how they speak. And with cats, you can't yell at them. Mm-hmm. They will not respond the way a bear will. Um, you have to sweet talk them a little bit with a big cat. You have to, um, you know, do things on their terms. And um, clicker training was a really good way of interacting with them that they could communicate and we could communicate with them what we were looking for in that, you know, um, interaction. So um, while I wasn't a great clicker trainer at that point, I thought maybe I could become a better clicker trainer. And I decided to look up dog training programs because I figured maybe I knew some of the other people I had worked with the sanctuary had gone the dog training route in a various ways. And I thought maybe that would be a good way to do it. Cause I was planning on getting a dog, my first dog, my first dog as an adult. And, um, and I thought this would, you know, this would be good. I could train him and I could figure out if I wanted to be a dog trainer and help other people. So I took a dog training certification through, um, animal behavior college, which, um, it was, seemed like a good route to take. There are some other ones I probably recommend these days because there's just more available now. Um, but, but for, you know, back then, which was now 15 years ago, I think maybe a little more than that, it was a really good option because it was a long-term program. It introduced me to things like working you know, with another trainer in the area and seeing how she ran her classes. I had to do some hours working at an animal shelter and training the dogs at the animal shelter, um, for, for part of the program, but beyond the, you know, the book learning and the practicing stuff. And, and it was at that point, I kind of got the animal welfare bug. You know, I, I worked with dogs in the shelter and, and got to meet a few there and realized that I really enjoyed that part of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I finished that certification. And then we moved to Singapore from Seattle. Just in time. As you do. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't run a business in Singapore because it takes a lot of paperwork to do that sort of thing in Singapore. Um, 
And so I didn't really continue with my dog training, uh, you know, teaching. I don't know what's the word I'm looking for here. Self-development in the dog training area, I suppose. For about a year, I kind of just, you know, hung around Singapore and walked around and ate the food and did a lot of yoga, like a lot of yoga. That was amazing about Singapore. There were yoga studios there that were open almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you could just walk in and there'd be like four different classes you might be able to join just yoga all the time. Yoga all the time. I did not know that about Singapore. Yeah. Oh, it was great. And foot massages. I did know that. Every corner you can get a foot massage. Oh my God. The best. Singapore food, Singapore foot massages, Singapore yoga. Uh, The zoos there were also very interesting. There's a night safari that is a zoo that's only open at night. And uh, all the animals are there in the dark, which is interesting because, you know, you see them more in the dark. Uh, they come out more because a lot of animals are nocturnal. And then their their daytime zoo was also really interesting because, honestly, there weren't a lot of cages. I mean, oh, they had a polar bear. That was sad. Um, not a happy polar bear. But a lot of it was just like they put a fence around part of the jungle. And then just like if there were animals in it, great. <laughs> so you'd be walking along and there'd be an orangutan hanging from a tree in front of you. And the orangutan habitat, like they had their own kind of island habitat, the way a lot of primate habitats are made these days in zoos, but they also had access to the trees. So much of the day they spent in the trees above you in a big part of the zoo. And you just look up and there'd be orangutans above you. You know, there's, there was a lizard. I remember going, oh, there's a lizard here and it's big. Is this a zoo animal that has escaped or is this? Yeah just a regular lizard who just lives in Singapore. I don't know. <laughs> I'll take a picture though, and I won't touch it. Um, you know, there was, there was that sort of thing. And that was kind of the amazing thing about the zoo in Singapore, I think is just that it was, it was like, they didn't even need fences. You could just walk into the jungle and you'd see crazy, you know, animals that I was not used to for them. I'm sure they were just like everyday stuff. Sometimes monitor lizards that were like eight feet long, just walking down the road um, there was a snake one time. Cause you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm an animal person. I'm really gravitate towards animals. And that's what that means to me being an animal person. And I was walking my dog and who, who moved with us and our three cats to Singapore as well. And I was outside our apartment complex, middle of, you know, downtown city in Singapore. And, and there was this wall with an, with Ivy on it. And there was a little black snake on the wall. And me, not thinking at all, went over and went, ooh, aren't you beautiful? And I was probably, I don't know, eight inches away from the snake's face. And um, it sort of looked at me and it was beautiful. I mean, it was the blackest black you've ever seen with green, emerald green and ruby red scales sort of flecked throughout the most beautiful snake. And it was only about the size of my forearm. It wasn't a big snake. It was very thin. And it was just you know, it looked at me and I looked at it and then it sort of slithered up and away off this wall and was gone. And I didn't think about it. It was just so pretty. And I went home and tried to look it up and it turns out it was a Southeast Asian spitting cobra. They spit venom into the eyes and face of the thing that they are generally trying to defend themselves against, which is a neurotoxin, which stops your breathing and kills you within five minutes. That would have been so great. Aren't you pretty? And then boom. That's the end of you. <laughs> yeah. So I really realized at that point, you know, oh, well, I need to not stick my face into other animals' faces. 
and I had had a little panic attack while I sat there in front of the computer realizing, yeah, what I had just done (laughs) and thankful that this little baby spitting cobra had decided to run instead of defend itself against me. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. It's crazy. So that was Singapore. Singapore was crazy. Yeah. I loved, I loved that part of, of Singapore that you just, anywhere I go, you know, seeing the wildlife is just so exciting. Like that's my favorite part of any travel is getting to see the wildlife, even if it's just urban wildlife, you know, it's just as exciting as seeing maybe not a lion, but other, other wildlife. And I think it made me appreciate also the wildlife that was native to the area I grew up that I just didn't really appreciate when I was growing up because, you know, to a Singaporean coming over here, I mean, seeing a moose would probably be amazing. Yeah. Like how crazy would that be seeing a moose, you know? And while I've never seen a moose in the wild, there's, you know, there's Northwest Trek here where you can kind of see moose sometimes and buffalo, which are huge, you know, and you don't see those in Singapore. They would be very exotic. It is true that we just kind of get used to what's here and are so surprised by what's elsewhere. I was thinking that when you were talking about uh, just walking through the zoo in Singapore with their orangutans above that for many of the people that would just be like, well, you know, okay, there's an orangutan, but for those of us who don't see them often, it would be like, there's an orangutan right above my head. This is weird. I know. Crazy. I know. So that was Singapore. Um, but after about a year, we, we realized we weren't going to stay there for more than two years. So I started working on a business plan to start a dog training business in New Zealand. In New Zealand? Yes, in New Zealand. Because, you know, I, my husband is British um, and he wasn't really ready to go back to England yet. And we weren't there's something about his visa that he couldn't go back to the U.S. yet either because he had to be out of the U.S. for a certain period of time. Um, he really loved New Zealand and he was like, let's let's go down to New Zealand. And I initially was was thinking this is even farther away than Singapore. And I don't you know, I don't want to go farther away. I'm already in Singapore. Uh, but he goes, well, let's just go down for, you know, a long weekend. I have to go down there for a business trip anyway, because he was traveling all over Asia and and Australasia and just come with me and see how you like it. And I fell in love with New Zealand. Just, you know, Wellington was my town. I I felt at home there and, you know, the wind will knock you down and it's beautiful. It's like Dr. Seuss took all of his pictures straight from New Zealand. You know, the, the, the wildlife there is primeval looking and amazing. And the plants are just like Dr. Seuss plants. So I was sold. I said, okay, let's move down to New Zealand, move to Wellington. And I worked on my business plan because he could get moved, but not generally to New Zealand. His job was actually going to be in Sydney in Australia, which is not close. It's closer than a lot of other things, but it's still like a four hour plane commute. So we were going to live in New Zealand, but he was going to work in Australia and commute when he needed to, but work out of New Zealand because he, he traveled so much anyway at that point that it wouldn't really matter where we were actually living, we decided. So I started reading a whole lot more books because I realized I didn't, with my ABC certification was great. It gave me a really good introduction into dog training, but it, I didn't really feel prepared to take clients. Mm-hmm. So I started just, I just went to the bookstore and I picked out whatever books I could find on dog training. And I I didn't really know what I was looking for. I was just looking for books. I was the Barnes and Noble in Singapore. And I picked up three books and one book was, oh, I should have grabbed them off the shelf so that I could remember all of their names. But there was one book about a woman who had such a strong bond with her, her dog that she was able to give up drinking 
it was kind of a book about her relationship with her dog and how her dog sort of ended up being her focus. And maybe that wasn't the most healthy thing ever, but she was an alcoholic and she had needed something to focus on. It was, it was a really interesting relationship book about this woman and her dog. Mm -hmm. And then I picked up uh, one of Cesar Milan's books Mm -hmm. and I picked up uh, a book called If Dogs' Prayers Were Answered, Bones Would Rain from the Sky by Mm -hmm. Suzanne Clothier. Again, I knew nothing about all three of them. They just looked like, okay, well, Cesar Milan has a show. I'll read what he has to say. I'll read Suzanne Clothier's book looked beautiful and it was wrapped in plastic. So I wasn't even allowed to like (laughs) thumb through it. I just figured it must be good if it's wrapped in plastic. Always the sign. Yeah, (laughs) always a good sign. Uh, so I took these three books home and read the first one and I read the Caesar Milan one and I saved the Caesar Clothier one for last because it was the biggest one. And the first one was interesting. Again, this relationship book, the second one was Caesar Milan. I, I tried some of the things with my dog because he had a lot of interesting things to say and, and a lot of it made sense. So I, I did try some of the things and my dog looked at me like I was insane. Mm-hmm. Like just the look on his face was what, what are you up to lady? Like you were, you were acting weird. (laughs) He was not a dog that, you know, by any means, he was a very confident little dog. He would tell you what he wanted to do and what he didn't want to do, but it's not like he was, you know, pushy or bossy or anything. And it was like all the Caesar Milan stuff was you need to, to, to be the dominant personality in your relationship. And if you're not, then your dog is going to try to take over the world. Mm -hmm. Or at least your house. Mm-hmm. And while Cooper was never trying to take over the house that I could see, maybe he was, you know, I was new to dog training. Like maybe this was a thing and I just hadn't seen it because I just didn't know to look. Um, so I tried some of these stuff. And again, I, it felt weird. I didn't do anything, you know, super horrible to him. I tried claw hand on him. I don't know if that's something you're familiar with. Caesar Milan claw hand mm-hmm. um, to try to get him to stop a behavior that was annoying me. And he like side-eyed me like, what the lady, what are you, what are you doing? (laughs) And the second time he just kept doing what he was doing. I'm like, okay, well that didn't, I don't know (laughs) what that was about. Um, And the, the idea that I had to like walk through a doorway before him. And when he didn't care, like he honestly could give a crap who walked him through a doorway first. Right. Uh, He didn't even really want to go out for a walk. Thanks. It's hot out there. Singapore. So, you know, that stuff was sort of like, okay, take it or leave it. And then I read Suzanne's book and it was like that kachunk sort of moment where I realized, oh, this this is the relationship that that I want to have. Yes. This feels right. This is the kind of dog trying to want to be for people to help them, you know, have this sort of relationship with their dogs. And so I started picking up more books and not again, just trying to pick up everything I could find. I wasn't really focused on one particular style of training because what I wanted to do was make sure that I knew what everybody was talking about Mm -hmm. that way. If, if I did read or if somebody, one of my clients was a real follower of Caesar Milan, I could talk to them about that Mm -hmm. find out what they liked about it. And there's a lot of those books out there, not Caesar Milan necessarily, but lots of other authors that have maybe questionable uh, methods that people had read and, and it did actually really pay off. I, I had one client who had read a book that had told her that to get her labradoodle to stop jumping up and, you know, getting crazy when they got home, they had to ignore him. So they would ignore him for three hours. Ugh. because he would not calm down. Right. 
because he had a lot of energy and he was excited to see them. And so he, he had this trick of running into the, the son's room and grabbing some socks and then running around the house with them because that would finally get their attention. Like they couldn't ignore that because he was going to eat these socks. And so they'd hired me because I had said I'd read this book on one of my blogs that she decided was the book they wanted to, to do everything by, even though it wasn't really, it couldn't figure out why this method wasn't working. Right. So I talked to them about it, figured out what she liked about it, you know, and what, what was going to work and what wasn't. And, and we realized that there were actually moments where the dog was being quiet. He was, they were just very small, short moments that she needed to figure out how to reinforce those moments instead of just ignoring him for three hours, right. like ignoring right. for three seconds. And then finding that moment where he sits, finding that moment where his butt touches the ground, finding that moment where he looks away and goes and finds, you know, a toy that you want him to do. That's the moment you want to reinforce. And whether that's with a clicker or a treat or just a, a good boy and a pat, great. Like I'm not married to the idea of, of using treats and clickers only. I think they're great communication devices and great rewards for when you want to, you know, have those moments of training, but you know, if you don't want to use those, then find out what else your dog likes and do that. And I, I really, you know, when I started taking clients in New Zealand, after I had read all of these books and started feeling a bit more confident, you know, even just reading more books wasn't enough. I, I started volunteering with the animal shelters that were nearby, because again, I'd had this experience with ABC where I worked with Seattle Humane here. And I started just offering my dog training services to the shelters that were nearby and saying, I'll just come in as a regular volunteer if you want me to, but I could also train the dogs if you want me to. And, and they said, yeah, sure. I mean, in both cases, they were like, just train the dogs. We don't have anybody doing that right now. So that's great. So I would spend, you know, two or three hours each time I went down and I would go through all of the dogs. These are relatively small um, shelters. They were the RSPCA of New Zealand, but they, they just kind of let me do my thing. And I would practice my clicker work with their dogs and I'd help them with a little bit of play group stuff. And we would talk about the dogs and their personalities and, and what would be good for them. And um, I didn't work with the puppies too much uh, because they had a whole another section for puppies, but occasionally got to work with some puppies at the other shelter and, and do personality stuff with them. And I really was interested in finding out more about uh, temperament testing and personality testing, how that really worked or if it worked, you know, what, how do you actually match these animals up with humans? That was so stressful to me to think about, like, what mm -hmm. if you get the wrong match? What if they don't like the dog or the dog doesn't like them? Or I couldn't do it. I, I just, I could work with the dogs. I could do the training, but that, that part blew my mind. Like, how do you make that decision, whether it's going to be a right choice or not? Cause if you make the wrong choice, like maybe the dog or human is going to be unhappy for the rest of their life yeah. with that new companion. But for me, whenever I find something that I don't understand or, or don't feel comfortable with, I, I kind of, I want to dig into it a bit more and figure out how to do it. So I started looking for books on that subject and looking for books on how to walk dogs because, you know, reactive dogs are such an issue at the moment um, and have been for a while now, really. Maybe they always have been. But, you know, working with working with dogs on leash versus just off leash because I've pretty much always done off leash stuff. And I just really honed my clicker skills during that time and worked with, worked with all of these shelter dogs, not really dogs in anybody's home because I had to wait for my business license to come through before I could actually take clients in New Zealand. So I did that for quite a few months. And then when that finally came through, I got my business visa. I started taking clients and I, I did that for three years in New Zealand and I loved it. It was, it was amazing going into people's homes and helping them work with issues. I, I kept pictures of all the dogs that I worked with, especially all the ones that had gone through the shelters. Cause I continued to volunteer at the shelter 
And I would take pictures of the dogs at the shelter and we'd use them on the website often. And then I'd end up working with those dogs in the new home that they were in also sometimes. Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed that aspect of that work because, you know, it's been again, almost 15 years since all of that. And I feel like a lot of those dogs now are probably have passed away. Like, I don't know how many of those dogs that I worked with in New Zealand are still around, mm-hmm. but I know the people I worked with, I think for a lot of them, it, it changed how they worked with any of their future dogs as well. The whole ripple effect. Yeah. Aren't around anymore. The people are still hopefully having those really good relationships with their, their future dogs. And so that made me really happy. Still does. You're a great storyteller. You have so many great stories. Um, and I would let you go on forever, except for, you know. I know, I know. We're just in New Zealand. I know. I can quickly, quickly say that after New Zealand, we went to Washington, D.C., and I was the uh, director for behavior and rehoming at the Washington Humane Society for a couple of years. And lo- again, lots of good stories there. Then I we moved to the U.K., and I started a uh, animal sanctuary there. We also did hedgehog release and fostering for the wild hedgehogs that are in England. And uh, we had sheep on the sanctuary and I didn't start, I didn't do dog training anymore after that. That is where I ended up doing my anthrozoology degree with the university of Exeter, which has a fantastic anthrozoology program. Because when I left DC, DC was an amazing, I I loved working with the people there. The Washington Humane Society was amazing. I was really sad to leave that job, but I knew if I was going to, then I wanted to do my next school thing. So I, I looked around and, and anthrozoology was suddenly a thing, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for. (laughs) Like there is this thing, you know, no matter what my teacher said that I was crazy, that, that nobody cares about whether animals and humans can interact. Like they do care. They do. And they do. And, and there's, there's now more than one place that focuses on it. You know, there's human animal studies, there's anthrozoology, there's zooanthropology, there's, you know, different terms or different, different words for the same term. And depending where you go and, and the Exeter anthrozoology program is excellent. I would highly recommend it. It's, it's um, an online program. So, well, like 95% of it's online and, and it was so great. It opened up my eyes to so many, again, the broadness of the area and stuff I hadn't even thought of before. So it's, it, it just really, uh, got me excited about all of the different ways that humans and animals interact. And uh, so, you know, during the pandemic, I, you know, I've been raising two small children now for a couple of years and I needed to, to think about some things that weren't just about little kids. I love my little kids, but yeah, I needed some more things to think about. And so I decided to start a podcast so um, I started an anthrozoology podcast, and now I get to talk to really interesting people all the time about a subject that is amazing and fascinating and really never-ending fascinating because there's just so many different ways that we interact with animals. Yes, there are. There's so many different ways. And podcasting is such a great way to do that because that's why I'm so glad you're here with me. And one of the things we do on my show is talk about words that have had meaning to a person and the words you shared were this too shall pass. I'm never sure how you say it from the desiderata. Is that how they, I mean, I've heard that said different ways and I'm not sure what the proper pronunciation of that one is. Desiderata is how I've always pronounced it, but yeah, you're right. I've heard it pronounced a couple of different ways. Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting quote. And in listening to you tell your stories now, I'm like, oh, I think I know why that's 
meaningful to her, but I'm so curious to hear where did you pick that up along the way and what has it meant to you? You know, it was, it was something my mom said a lot when I was a kid and I found the entire piece on some sort of, I think in the UK at some market on a, you know, piece of parchment. And it's just so beautiful. And the idea that that everything in life is fleeting mm-hmm. and you really, you have to appreciate what you have when you have it, or you're just never going to be happy. Yeah. But also yeah. the things that are sad and horrifying and that really affect you negatively will also pass. Yeah. So when I was in Singapore, I caught so many colds. I, I caught everything. I was, if you could be allergic to a country, I was allergic to Singapore. I just was sick all the time. And you know, I knew we were only going to be there two years. It, it's it's rough. You know, the pandemic is rough for so many people in so many ways. Um, losing a pet is rough, which we just lost Cooper, the dog that traveled with mm, us for 17 years yeah. last week. Sorry, don't want to cry. Yeah. Um, but it all passes, you know? It all passes. Yeah. Things get, things always eventually do get better and then they get worse again. <laughs> but they just keep going and we just got to go with it Mm -hmm. and be up for it. Yeah. Be in the moment with what, what is there, which you demonstrated so beautifully with each of your stories of that or something would shift and you dove in with curiosity and enthusiasm and abandon and just sort of like, wow, what's here for me now, instead of letting the time elapse and then be like, well, what came from that? You know, I had my moments <laughs> of letting the time lapse, but it would always sort of, the realization would set in that I felt like I just wasn't doing enough. I like to be busy. Awesome. So fascinating. So you are busy. And if people want to learn more about you and your work and all of the busy things you do, how could they do that? Well, they can listen to my podcast. Uh, it is uh, The Deal with Animals. And you can find it pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts these days. Uh, and you can go to my website at thedealwithanimals.com or my Twitter handle at TDWA podcast, or of course, Facebook, The Deal With Animals. If you want to, you know, listen to me talk with other people about their interconnections and bonds with animals. And I, you know, I like to talk about, I like to talk to academics and advocates for animals, but I also love to talk to, you know, historians and enthusiasts and just about anybody with a connection with animals, because it's not just a research area. It's also just how we live. Yeah. And everybody has an experience that's interesting and worth hearing. And there's there's so many connections. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful to you for taking time today and sharing all those stories. I have so many very vivid images from the stories you shared that I know will stay with me not the least of which is the snake. Don't stick your face. I think we can wrap this up by saying, don't stick your face in other animals' faces. Like if there's one rule to, to live by. Pretty good rule to live by. I think we'll, we'll adopt that one. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Marika. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at colleenpilar.com where you can be steady, be strong, and be long.